Well, good morning. It's my great pleasure and privilege to greet you in the name of Jesus this morning. It's a great pleasure to be here. Oh, and to see God's house so full. This is, this is just lovely. Turn with me to Psalm 121. And I'll just start at the beginning. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills. From whence cometh my help? My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is thy keeper. The Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve thee from all evil. He shall preserve thy soul. The Lord shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. Where does my help come from? You know, roads roads take the, the easiest course along through the the bottomlands between and around, not, not over hills and mountains. Now, up where we live in the valley, we see that because there's mountains on either side, and every place there's a break in the mountain, there's a road goes through there. The roads don't try to go straight up and down over the mountains. And as the psalmist is passing along the road, he's looking up at the hills on either side of him, and he knows that those hills can hide bandits and robbers and people who can come and attack suddenly and they'll have the advantage of height. And he asks, where does my help come from? Who's going to help me make it through this valley, through this pass? Well, this is a song of ascents. So that means that the pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem sang these songs on their way up, up the hills into Jerusalem. And, and like them, You know, our walks take us between the mountains. We're surrounded by an ungodly society. There are scoffers and haters of the Lord, people doing and approving all kinds of evil. They're, They're all around us. And we're ambushed and attacked from every side. How are we going to make it home? How are we going to walk through all that and at the end of our lives be with Jesus? Well, you know, the answer for the pilgrim and for us is the same. It comes to us immediately in verse 2. My helper is the Lord. So what does that help look like? What does it look like when we get help from the Lord? And how do we we access that help? How do we call for it? How does God send it? Well, one way he provides that help for us is through something that we like to call accountability. Now, if you remember last time I was here, I guess maybe it's been about a year ago, maybe you don't remember, it's a quiz. I've been doing a a series, and we call it um, Have a Ready Answer. And, you know, it's not a real exciting series. Maybe it can be a little dry because we're just looking at questions of the faith. And so at the end, you know, we don't have people with a big altar call or anything. Sometimes it feels like... um, Maybe it's just a lesson. Maybe it's a Sunday school. 
but it's things that we need to know because we confront people all the time and people confront us and they have questions. If we're going to live a separated life, if we're going to be a regulated church, if we're going to live for Christ in a visible way, people are going to ask us questions about our walk. And the fact is we talk about accountability a lot as a church. It's an important thing to us. But people in unregulated churches, they, they really have no reference point. Well, my church doesn't tell me what to do. You know, I, I wouldn't, if I were in a Methodist church, there's virtually no possibility of me being excommunicated or even being under any kind of church discipline. So that just doesn't make any sense to them. People who aren't in the church at all, well, they have even less of a reference. Accountability might mean, well, you go to jail, right? There's nothing, is there any in between? So accountability is one of those things that we might be called to have a ready answer for. When people ask us, what does that mean when you say there's accountability? 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be always ready to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and with fear, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation with Christ. So do we have answers? When people say, well, you're different. Why? I'm a Christian. I go to church. I don't do the same things that you're doing. Why do you do those things? Do we have answers? So our question today is, have a ready answer. Where does my help come from? Accountability. So what are the questions? What questions do we have about accountability when someone asks us? Well, what does it even mean to be accountable? And accountable for what? And to whom? And perhaps most importantly, though, how is accountability help? How, how does that help me? Well, let's start with what does accountability mean? Well, how is it used in Scripture? You know, actually, the form that we're used to, accountability, well, it isn't in Scripture. You know, in the King James, though, we have the word account 11 times in the New Testament. And eight of those 11 times, the same Greek word is translated as account. So we have Matthew 12, 36. They shall give account thereof. Matthew 18, 23. Would take account of his servants. Luke 16, 2. Give an account of thy stewardship. Acts 19, 40. Give an account of this. Romans 14, 12. Give an account of himself to God. Philippians 4.17, fruit may abound to your account. Hebrews 13.17, as they must give account. And 1 Peter 4.5, who shall give account to him. And we'll look at most of those verses as we go along. But in each one of these little excerpts, we see an explanation and a promise of judgment. Give an account. Explain yourself. And then be judged. Except for Philippians 4.17, they all seem pretty negative, don't they? You know, you're going to have to account for this or for that. And we get this picture of a ledger, of a balance of accounts. Is the account in balance? Is there enough good 
on this side of the ledger to offset the bad, the debt on the ledger. But those eight places, they aren't the only time in scripture that this particular Greek word is used. In fact, it's really used quite a lot. And maybe if we saw some of the other places, I wonder if we might think of this accounting in a little bit of a different light. How about this one? John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The word translated as account in those other eight verses is rendered here as word. The Greek word is logos. Now, in ancient Greek, this word, logos, it would be something that every Greek adult would be expected to explain. You'd be expected to explain what your logos is. Your logos would be your your reasoning of life. It would be the, the sum total of the thoughts and the knowledge that you lived and made your decisions by. That would be your logos. And you would be expected to be able to explain that. It was just basic common philosophy. Everyone had a logos. You don't just do things by accident. You have reasons and thoughts that propel you and help you and make you do different things. A man's logos was really the word that he lived by. And here we see Jesus described as God's logos. God shows us in the Savior his reason for creation, his reason for you, his reason for all of the things that he does. They're all visible to us in Christ. So a man's logos was his story. It was more than just an accountant's ledger of good and bad acts. His logos was the account, the story of his life, the explanation of all the things that he had done, all that he had thought and done and the reasons that he had acted as he had. Now, even if you're not a parent, you've probably experienced a young child who runs up to you and he's so excited to tell you this long and complex story of his day. I did this and I did that and this happened and that happened and it's all so exciting to them. If you are a parent, you've probably also had that same child come to you to give you his confession of the things he wasn't supposed to do that day. Well, each of us will have that same opportunity with the Father. The opportunity or the requirement to share our story. So, is it going to be a story that we're anxious to tell? Well, so that's what accountability is. The opportunity or the requirement to share our story. Well, who do we tell our story to? Well, Romans 14, 11, and 12 tells us, For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. And so then, every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Now Paul's quoting Isaiah here, Isaiah 45, 23, The Lord says, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. 
So God created us, and he designed a purpose for us, and he has every right to ask for an account from us. He clearly states that he's going to do just that. And scripture speaks repeatedly of this accounting. Revelations 20.12 is just one example. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. So we're going to be accountable to the Father. We're going to be accountable to God. Well, so what are we going to be accountable for? Well, what is it in our story that God's listening for? What does he want to hear? What are the things that he expects us to tell? Revelation 20.12 tells us we'll be judged according to our works. So he wants to hear all the things that we've done. Jesus tells us that we'll also be judged for the things that we haven't done. Matthew 25, 45 says, Then he shall answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. We'll have to explain the evil thoughts that we've harbored and the resulting words that we've spoken. Matthew 12, 35 and 36, Jesus says, A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. The thoughts that we've had and the words that came. But we'll also be able to tell of the things that we've done for the Lord. Philippians 4, 15 and 17 tells us, Now you Philippians know also, That in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity. Not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But all, all this is about judgment. How is judgment a help to me? Am, am I anxious to be judged? Do I, is that, does that help me get through my day, the, the fear of being judged? You know, we all know our own story, and everyone's story includes sin. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Hebrews 4.13 says, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. We, we can't hide our sins from God. And the knowledge of our sin and that we will have to tell our story to the Lord compels us to find a remedy for that situation. That all we have to tell God about is how we've defied him. In Acts 2, 37 and 38, after Peter gives this sermon at Pentecost, they say, now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. There's an answer for the problems in our story. 
And we can change the direction. God has provided us a way in his son. And then having followed Peter's instruction and accepted Christ, we still continue to test ourselves, to review our story, to see what's going on and how are we doing. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. I should be able to know, look at myself, examine my life. Is my story going in the right direction? Am I going to tell a story that God wants to hear? Judgment is not a pop quiz. You remember pop quizzes in school? You came in and you thought it was just a study day and it's going to be just so nice and easy. And the teacher has that little grin. And ah, we're having a pop quiz today. Okay, no, I don't study until the day before the exam, and now we're having a quiz, okay. So no, but judgment is not like that. God isn't trying to catch us and make sure we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. God wants us to grow and develop and give us our story. It's not a pop quiz. We know every day of our lives what God expects of us, and we know what our story is. We know if the main character of our story is ourselves or Jesus Christ. And that knowledge is a mercy and a help to us. Acts 4.11 says, This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation by any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Saved from our own story. We can change our story. When the main character of our story becomes Jesus, judgment turns to grace. God has made a way for us to travel between the hills and to bring us out safe. And we have all of his many promises that he will bring us through. So how does he do that? Where does that help come from? Well, Am I my own helper? You know, we live in a time of self-help, right? If you go into any bookstore, by far the largest section is the self-help section. Well, does that work? Can I go and buy a self-help book and change my life? Maybe a diet book. No, that's not working. Now, we do have the greatest self-help book ever written. We have our scripture. And the Bible offers all kinds of self-help tips for us. Let's look at a few. First, we can be accountable to ourselves. As we saw in 2 Corinthians 13, we can review our story. We examine ourselves to see if Christ is on our throne. And if he is, well, Scripture tells us how to keep him there. And if he's not on our throne, Scripture tells us how to get him there. Colossians 3, 1 and 2 says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. So we help ourselves by our focus, by seeking Jesus and not seeking the temporary things of the world. Philippians 4, 8 says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, Whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, 
Whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. I'm sure all of you could just recite that verse. And what a good way to just start your morning, to just get up and recite that verse and set your focus on all those good and lovely and beautiful things. You know, temptation comes to the mind, and the mind makes the body act. Right? You, you don't just, you're not just sitting there and all of a sudden you get up and sin. All right? It comes to you, you think on it, and you devise it, and eventually you act on it. If we keep our minds focused on these good things, on lovely things, the temptation just gets pushed away because we can see the reality. What is really beautiful? What are these things that I really, really want? Romans 12.2 says, And be not conformed unto this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. You know, this, this exercise strengthens our minds and our hearts and lets us see God's plan for us. So God gives us advice to help ourselves, right? People like to say, God helps those who help themselves, right? That's not a scripture verse. You can hunt for that for quite some time. So is that all God does then? Does he just give us help to help ourselves? Well, no, we know from the psalm that we just read, no, God is our helper. We're accountable to God, but he does everything that he can to make sure that we're going to have a story pleasing to him. He wants us to be with him. He wants us to come through that valley, and he's there to do everything he can to bring us out. That's his promise to us. God doesn't just leave us to help ourselves. He's provided the way to salvation, and he sought us out and rescued us. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation I have succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. God's generous offer to us is that everyone's sins can be covered. 1 John 2.2 says, And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sin of of the whole world. And he also offers to adopt us into his family. In Colossians 1.12 says, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sin. And he reaches out to us and pursues us even as we defy him. Right? Isaiah 1.18 says, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. This is why we're not afraid to ask or answer any question. God's not afraid of people's reason or people's logic. or He's not afraid of scientists or atheists or evolutionists. He has all the answers. And he's willing to sit down with you and reason with you to argue it out. What an incredible opportunity. God has no need to deal with you, but he wants to. He loves you. And he's willing to take that time and be with you. 
Beyond that, Jesus promises that now, here, he and the Father will live in us. You can turn over to John 14. And down to verse 19. And yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. But ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. And that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest myself to him. And Judith saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? And Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Jesus promises to come and be in you, to live with you. But God doesn't stop there. Even coming and being in you and part of you, that's, that's not sufficient help. God has more to offer you than that. The church is also your helper. It's given to you for a helper. God has given us the church as a safe place to, to worship him and to come and tell our stories, to share our struggles and our triumphs with one another. Different groups of people in the church are there to help you in, in different ways. You have your ministry. Well, why should I share my story, my account, with the church, or, or with the ministry in particular? Because, well, the ministry, they're like the, they're the judgment people, right? They're, they're the ones who say that I'm in trouble or not. Well, your ministry has a charge to care for you. 1 Peter 5, starting in verse 1, says, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive excuse me, a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Why are we all here? We're all here because we find ourselves together on the same road. We all want to have that same destination. We all want to be with Jesus. We all want to, in the end, be in heaven forever. So we're here willingly because this is the place where we can come to learn how to be with Jesus, to do the things that he wants for us. Now, your church leaders, your, your church leaders aren't shepherds because it's profitable in, in any worldly sense. Maybe it's kind of like being a dairy farmer. You know, they milk these cows and milk these cows, and it seems like nobody ever makes any money. I don't know. I mean, we have goats, and they basically eat the weeds, and I still have to go out with the weed eater. Well, the boys go out with the weed eater. I don't. But, <laughs> so what, 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 is the, what is the profit there? Well, the profit is 
that they love the Lord. We serve because we love the Lord. And because we love the Lord, we love you. We are commanded to love his flock. We want to serve God, and serving God means serving you. So why can you trust your story to your ministry? Well, Hebrews 13, 16, and 17 says, But to do good and to communicate, forget not, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief. For that is unprofitable for you. They that must give account. Your story is part of your ministry's story. You're not just by yourself. Your ministry has to give an account for you. What, what did we do when this sheep was astray? What did we do when this one was threatened? Or when the flock was endangered, did, did we love the sheep? Were the sheep well fed? Were they properly taught? Did we offer our lives for them? You know, when there are bumps in your story, you should be able to share them with your church because you're part of your ministry's story. They love you because you're a part of their account for God. Well, how much? How, how much does your ministry love you, really? When well, Philemon 18 and 19, Paul writes, If he hath wronged thee or oweth thee aught, put that on mine account. I, Paul, have written it with mine own hand. I will repay it. Albeit I do not say to thee thou, how thou owest unto me, even thine own self besides. Paul wrote to Philemon to ask him to welcome back a runaway slave, who at the same time he ran away also stole from him. And he asked him to greet this slave back as a fellow Christian, even as he would accept Paul himself back. And here he says, whatever wrong or debt he has to you, put it on my account. And here the word actually is, does refer to a financial ledger. So you just put that on my bill and I'll pay it. Don't let that stand between you. What do you owe to God? Does your ministry love you that much? that we would say that to God on your behalf. Put his fall on my account. Let me repay. Is that what's asked of us? Well, didn't God already say it in Hebrews 13, 17? They must give an account for you. Whether I would offer to pay it or not, you are already on my account. You're part of my story. My response to you is part of my account. 
you should be able to trust your ministry with your struggles. But our brothers and our sisters are also our helpers. Everyone in the church is charged with the same things. All believers are charged to warn those who go astray. Ezekiel 3, 18 and 19 says, When I say unto the wicked, Thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning, nor speakest to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, the same wicked man shall die in his iniquity. But his blood will I require at thine hand. Yet if thou warn the wicked, and he turn not from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. Well, y'all are in the same boat as your ministry, aren't you? You have to give that warning. It simply should not be possible to be a part of the church and to not be warned when our story is not what it should be. Now, this is a tremendous help to anyone who has the wisdom to listen. We can all be tempted or be deceived or be willful. And a warning from a loving brother or sister can save our souls. When someone falls, all believers should have a heart to seek them out and bring them home, to make them part of their story. It's not just a ministry job. James 5, 19 and 20 says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Just as the caravan is better able to fend off robbers than one traveler alone, there is safety in the numbers of the church. Close relationships with our brothers and sisters in the church make us stronger. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12 says, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe unto him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And Proverbs 27, 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. We can build each other up when we share our stories, when we give account one to another. We are stronger together than alone. And the real strength here is that these are relationships. This isn't one person lording over another. Oh, you're wrong, you're wrong. You need to do this. You need to straighten out. No, this is brothers and sisters coming together. How is your walk? Brother, how is your walk? How are you doing? That should be a a bell, a chorus going off to you. How's my walk? Let me tell you. Let me tell you how I'm doing. I've been longing for someone to ask me that. We live in a world where, how are you doing? That's a greeting, all right? No, you do not tell them how you're doing. You're fine. That's the answer, right? How are you? Fine. It's a greeting. Not in the church. In the church, how are you doing is, let's sit down and have a cup of coffee. This is going to be a while. We want to hear and share each other's stories. 
Ephesians 5.21 says, Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. So, then how do we get this help? We have help we can access ourselves. We can account to ourselves. We have help from the Lord. The Lord will come and he'll be with us and he'll be part of us. We have help from our ministry, people who are willing to serve us. We have help from our brothers and sisters because they're our brothers and sisters and they love us. But what do we have to do to get it? Because if I just sit there in the bench and I don't reach out, do any of those people understand that I need help? Have you ever had a pet bird? You have a pet bird and the thing is when they get sick you just can't tell. They're fine, they're fine, they're fine, they're dead. <laughs> because as a bird, well, being sick in the wild means you're going to get eaten. So you just have to do the best you can as long as you can. And then hopefully you'll drop over dead from whatever it is instead of getting eaten, because being eaten is no fun. Right? Well, as people were like that too. I don't want to confess to you, because you're going to eat me. I don't want to be torn down. I want to be built up. But I have to take that chance. I have to do something to get that help. Well, 1 Corinthians 1.10 says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Well, that's a lot to ask. How same are we? I've been two... Two Sundays in a row, I've been challenged about wedding rings and plain coats and mustaches. And people challenge me about the mustache. They don't understand the mustache I used to have. I need to carry a picture, I guess. <laughs> but why? These are little tiny things. Why would you let those keep you from being part of a body that will take care of you? See, it's hard to help one another in our Christian walk if we can't just agree on what that walk looks like. And that's why we spend so much time together in conferences and things saying, well, do we want to ask our people to do this? Does the scripture say that we should do that? Because we want to be on that same page so that we're not needing help and unable to get it because we're worried about whether or not we should wear a mustache. One mind, one judgment. Ephesians 4.25 says, wherefore putting away lying... Speak every man the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Members of a body means members together. And the more honest and open we can be with each other, the more we can help each other. James 5, 13 through 16 says, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he hath committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another, that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. To get help, we have to ask for it. And we have to trust the body that we've placed ourselves in. Well, so what are our responsibilities then? When that happens, 
How does the rest of us, the rest of the church, react when we hear someone's story, when someone tells us their story, when we ask, how's your walk? And oh my, they told us how their walk is. What, what do we do? What if their story isn't so good? What if the main character of their story is absolutely self? What if it's worse than that? What if the main character of their story is, is Satan? What if their story is one of a terrible struggle? What is our responsibility? What, what are we supposed to do then? Romans 14 tells us, But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. And so then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. When we hear our brother's or our sister's story, the first thing we have to remember is we don't get to judge. Judgment is reserved for God. Our response determines whether or not our brother or sister will be able to confess sin here. Our response determines whether or not our brothers and sisters will be able to come here for help. If the only result of coming up here and confessing to a struggle or a fall is to be shamed and gossiped about, you can safely predict that no one here will ever confess to much of anything. Amen. People confess not because they just can't bear the guilt anymore. They confess because they can't overcome their sin by themselves and they want your help. Galatians 6, 1 through 5 says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then he shall have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. Every man shall bear his own burden. That doesn't sound like, like helping each other out, like listening to each other's story. But that's the, the last thing. The first thing is restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, lest thou also be tempted. Be tempted how? Am I tempted to commit the same sin he did? No. No, I'm tempted to be prideful that I didn't fall in to the same sin he did. Don't think yourself something when you are nothing. You could just as easily fall for the same or an even more dire sin. Restore him in a spirit of meekness. Build him back up. Resist the temptation to tear down. Don't. Bearing your own burden means don't think you're strong because you see these other people who are suffering. Remember that you could be in that same place. We are to comfort and restore and bear each other's burdens. We have to freely love, freely forgive, and freely encourage. Luke 17, 3, Jesus says, Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. 
And if you trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. Can you do that? I have a hard time with that. Seven times in a day. That, he almost has to have turned around and just done it immediately and then come back to you. It's hard to forgive. People do terrible things. People do things that we can't just forget. We still have to watch people who've done terrible things to help them not get into that trouble again. But that doesn't mean we don't forgive them. We have to remember that vengeance is God's. We have to seek to restore the fallen person so that they can serve God again. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 says, And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also you do. Nowhere in Scripture are we instructed to tear each other down. Your brother's story means that he's already torn down. Your job is to build him back up. When a brother or sister gives us their account, when they tell us their story, and, and we listen, whether they come up here to tell the whole church, or whether they can only bear to share their story with just you, their story becomes part of your story. What does God expect us to do? God expects us to react. He expects us to help his child. He doesn't expect us to run to ministry or tell anyone else. You're the one who's been chosen to help. Talk. Listen. Pray. Comfort. Cry. Sing songs. And if your help isn't bringing the person closer to victory, then it's up to you to go to them and convince them they need more help. Convince them to bring in more help, to share their story with another person. Because you have to have their trust. And keep adding help in that way until the victory has been won. Whether they spoke only to you or whether they spoke up here to the whole church, call them and check on them. Brother, how's your walk? And if they call you and they say, brother, I'm struggling. I, I just think I'm just going to have to do this thing. Go. Go and be with them to strengthen them. There's nothing like being with someone face-to-face to pray with them, to listen to them, to visit them, to answer them, to comfort them. And I mean go. I'm talking leave the chopper running in the field, go. I mean get up from the dinner table and go. I mean drop what you're doing and go. Your brother's soul is in danger. What is more reason to get up? and go. 
Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. If that's the way we respond to one another when we're struggling, instead of seeing failure after failure, we're going to see victory after victory. God has made a way for our help to come through accountability. Shall we have a song?